actually being able to praise the Lord, just like we did just a moment ago. Uh, if you will now open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, since we're a Bible-oriented church, now I want to reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible scripture as it was given in the originals. We're going to be looking at a few of the texts here in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at verse 18 and 24, and then chapter 3, verse 9. Today's sermon is coming from this book. Uh, we have been spending more time in it than usual. Uh, this book written by Solomon in his old age, in his latter chapters. He's now been king for almost 40 years. And as he wraps up and summarizes things, he presents it to us as a pundit. Not necessarily somebody that's a preacher, even though the word is koheleth and sometimes translated preacher. He is somebody that's trying to explain it, almost like a philosopher. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verse 18. This is God's word. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. If you could turn to verse 24. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw was from the hand of God. And verse, chapter 3, verse 9, there is another echoing. What gain has the worker from all of his toil? These questions or these phrases, they sometimes don't look like they weave together. But as we look at the text today, I pray that you will understand. Keep your Bibles open. If you're using your pew Bibles, uh, it's found on page 704 and 5. Uh, we're going to be looking at God's Word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll take this word, this word about toil, and help us not to have to struggle to understand it. Lord, I pray that you would teach us and show us, but Lord, most importantly, we pray that we would meet with you. Worship is having an encounter with the living and true God. Lord, we want to do your bidding, so show us. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. On my son's senior trip, uh, now we were homeschooled, so it was kind of nice to schedule a senior trip. Uh, my oldest son, Caleb, uh, I have a policy that each of my kids would do a senior trip with dad. So Caleb came up with this great idea that we were going to go to a cave underground. Now that's not necessarily my biggest desire in life. Uh, but it was way out there, probably not too far from the eastern Kentucky. Uh, there was this huge cave system that we were going to go to. And uh, we decided that we would fly out there. And uh, back in the days, this is while we were still in Delaware, uh, the way to get there was to fly Frontier. And Frontier had an airport. Uh, they had a, a thing right up there. If you go up um, Route 1, right before you get to the mall, uh, right past the mall, they have a small airport there, and they were giving fares for $56 round trip. I said, Caleb, let's go. The problem was they didn't fly to where we wanted to go. So we flew all the way to Detroit, and uh, that was where we got our rental car and took off. But when we were landing in Detroit, there I have my son, and we're on a senior trip to do whatever we want to do, eventually to go underground. And as we're landing, this lady sitting next to me, she says, you're here in Detroit. She says, you have to see that museum. She says, it's just down the road. It's the Henry Ford Museum. So I said, this must be God's providence. 
you know, he works things together for good. So Chris, or Caleb and I got a car. We went over to Henry Ford's museum, and I was amazed. Today's topic is about labor, and Henry Ford was a revolutionary because before his time, people had not understood labor quite the same. And what do, you, what, do, what do I mean by this? Well, when we went through and saw some of the cool engines, the old tractors, they had some neat gadgets. They even had that, that, that one house that looks like a spaceship. You know, I think there's one up here just up the road, too. Uh, they had all these cool gadgets and, and inventions that they were going to do. But what was so revolutionary was that Henry Ford came up with this idea about the car. And it wasn't the car that amazed me. It was the work week. You see, Henry Ford wanted everybody that did the, the job that he was going to employ them to do to be able to enjoy the fruit of their labors. He basically, let me summarize it like this. He was going to build cars, but who was he going to build them for? He wanted to build cars that would be enjoyed by his own employees. And that was revolutionary. Because in order for them to enjoy it, they had to have some time to enjoy it. If they bought one of those Model Ts, where were they going to, when were they ever going to drive it if they were working seven days a week? And so he came up with this idea of an assembly line, and he tried to get all the work done in five days. Hence, you get the five-day work week. And what were you supposed to do on day six or day seven? Well, Henry, you should have told him to go to church at least on that one. But instead, they all ended up being able to have a job with a wage that allowed them to be able to buy one of these cars so they could drive on the weekend to wherever they go, and praise God, some did go to church. I had to get that in. The labor. We're on Labor Day 2022, and a lot of people are not understanding labor. And some of us may not understand what Solomon has been saying because he's been saying the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Let me explain how it works this way. Uh, I want to start with Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house uh, who is going to uh, have a, uh, an employment situation. He's actually got a vineyard. And so the way that the story unfolds, and some of you know the story, so I'll speed it up for you. Uh, the master goes out, and he, in the morning, he hires some people to work for him during the day. They make a deal. Here it says they're going to do a denarius a day. You don't know what a denarius is, so let's just say a $100 bill. They're all agreeing that they're going to work for the whole day for $100. Excellent. And a bunch of people come and work for him. Interestingly enough, after agreeing, the laborers uh, went and started working. But then three hours later, the same landowner, the same entrepreneur goes out and he says, I want to hire some more people. And so he finds some people standing around, folks that are not working or not employed. And he says, come work for me. And they come and, and they do. And they said, whatever is right, I will give you. And so they came and they went. Then this, this, this employer says, hey, I want more. Three hours later, he goes out and he does the same. He brings new people in. And then about the 11th hour, I mean, and we're talking about 12-hour day, uh, on the 11th hour, he comes in and he says some of the same stuff. He says, why are you still standing here all day? I mean, you, you guys look like major lazy people. You're just still hanging around the town square and you're not working. And they said to him, because no one hired us. And so the employer said, come work for me. And that was at the 11th hour. 
So when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard called to his foreman, call the laborers, and this is verse 8, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one of them received a $100 bill. What do you think is going to be the rest of the story? We don't even have to wait for Paul Harvey to tell us. We already know everybody's going to complain. This is the workplace, and we need to have equity. We need to have fairness. We need to have everybody get the, get the same. Now, when the hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each one of them also received the same amount. Verse 11, and on the receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, the last ones worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Mm, right? Or is it the little violin? But, they, the, when, but he replied to those people, the laborers, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to work for me for this amount? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this, the last worker, as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I chose with, the, with what belongs to me? Or do you do begrudge my generosity? It's very interesting when you think about labor. And uh, this makes the case for me in the, in the workplace today. You can go to all the big box stores or you could go even to some of the small mom and pop stores and you can barely get anybody to work, I mean, that, that works there anymore. It's just yesterday I found out one of our people went over to Lowe's or to Home Depot and, and they would hire you right on the spot. Why? Because they can't find anybody that wants to work anymore. Ironically, Jesus said the same thing back in Matthew chapter 9. You might know this verse. Jesus went through all the cities and villages, and uh, he's, he's trying to equip the disciples. Um, they had been harassed. They had been helpless uh, because he said people are sheep without shepherds. And he looks at his disciples. He says, the harvest here is plenteous, but the laborers are... Nobody wants to work. The labor market is not healthy. It wasn't then. And it's not now. I'm not here to twist your arm to make you feel bad, but do you feel that sense? The harvest is plenteous. Why don't we bring in the harvest? The laborers are few. The labor market is struggling. When you look at the word labor in this text of, of Ecclesiastes, it's in there uh, 51 times. Or no, it's actually almost like 200 times in the Old Testament. The, labor, the word is translated labor over 50 times. Uh, it's called troubles, uh, misery 17 times, 65 times. It's toil, two times distress, two times abuse, three times it's oppressive, 10 times labor, uh, eight times it's work. I mean, do you get the idea that this word is translated in many different ways? But none of these words seem to be very wonderful or positive. Almost every time it just sounds like, oh, no. Today, we hear people in the labor force, claims of inequality, claims of favoritism, claims of laziness, claims now of the rights of the workers. We don't have to go through all of this stuff. And it's really interesting today because, as I said, we're on Labor Day, and guess how much work is being done today? It's a misnomer. 
So when did Labor Day get started up? Uh, it, I, when I was looking back in history, it was right before my grandfather was even born, at the, in the end of the 1800s. And uh, back in those days, uh, there was some celebrations taking place because the laborers had gotten together to form some unions. And when they formed some unions, they were trying to tell the employers how they needed to treat, be treated better. And in the beginning, some of these things were very, very helpful. But of course, in many ways, now they've moved on to where they make it so that the, la the unions try to often make it so that the laborers don't have to do much labor. It's really interesting how all of these great ideas can be polluted and mess things up. Today, I want to be able to show you from Ecclesiastes at least two points and then add the third. These points are this, the wisdom of labor. I want to look at the want of labor, and then I want to see the wonder of labor. When you see it today, I think you will remember these points as you follow along with me. The wisdom of labor is interesting because God was the one who created it. You could go all the way back to Genesis chapter uh, 2 and in the garden. I think I have it right here. Uh, Genesis 2.15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work. To keep. Now, this was by God's design and this happened even before Adam and Eve sinned. So this idea of work is actually in the perfect world. You got to di digest this. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the pundit, which is, which is Solomon, is trying to tell us that work is not a bad thing. When I look at some of the texts that he's given to us, Ecclesiastes 2.24, you should be able to hear this, where he says, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. You see, Solomon, even though he seems to be pretty pessimistic, does come out multiple times in the text, and he says, hey, it's a wonderful thing to find this enjoyment in your toil. That's why I want to be able to show you that there's three things about this gift of labor. Three things that, that he brings out in the text. The first one is that uh, it's the gift of purpose. The second is the gift of pleasure. And the third is the gift of time to serve. Or you could call it fulfillment of time. But quickly I want to be able to say that God gave this, this idea of work to us as a beautiful thing. It's a gift of God that gives us purpose. And if you look there in verse 24, again, of chapter 2, we read it as part of our text. Uh, you can see there is nothing better for a person, nothing better than that person should be able to find enjoyment in his work. This also, I saw, is from where? From the hand of God. Do you see the divine fingerprints on work? Even Solomon says that it's God's blessing for you to be able to do something that matters. It gives you some sense of accomplishment in your life. It's God's gift. If you turn over to chapter 5, verse 19, you can also see it pretty clearly explained there where it says, uh, chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil which is under which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. You see, not only does God give this as a gift to you, but then he also gives it to you uh, not only for purpose, but also for pleasure. I was surprised that when you turn over to chapter 9, verse 9, you'll see the same kind of thing. In chapter 9, verse 9, he says, um, I've got it here, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. 
all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which your toil at which you toil at under the sun. Now, if I could just make that a little bit easier to understand, he says, hey, those of you that get married, don't just try to get out of work. You saw, uh, you saw um, our brother come on up here, Eric, and he was trying to give that idea to kick the guy in the pants, okay? To kick him, to get him to go forward, to do a little bit more, to engage rather than to sit in the, sit in the uh, stands and just be a spectator. In this particular text, you find that people that have been blessed with work ought to endure it with their, all their energy and their might. Don't do it half-heartedly. You know, in, first, in Colossians, it said, whatever you do, do heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. But in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, he says, hey, husbands and wives, if you're married even from a young time, work is something that you don't want to run away from. It's something that you want to embrace. It's a beautiful thing. It's not only by God's design to give you purpose, but also to give you pleasure. And I often say that it is also to fill the time of your life. Did you hear how he says, you only have so many days? If you go to Psalm 90, which is, I believe, from, from Solomon's dad, you know, God tells us to teach us to number our days. Elsewhere, we know that three score and ten is a good number of years. That's, that's 60 plus 10 or 70 years. So if you have more than 70, consider yourself blessed, because that's kind of like the average, so to speak. But Solomon doesn't tell us how many days or years we have. He just says, you have a vain life. It's, it appears like a vapor, and then it's gone. But he says, while you have this life, work. Now, and I realize that, that, that it's part of God's design for work to, from the beginning. God told Adam and Eve that they ought to do this, keep the garden, be diligent to take care of it. But then you realize that this beautiful gift of work got tainted. If you turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, and this comes right after the curse to the, uh, you know, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. Uh, it's when, when God is now pronouncing judgment on Adam and on Eve and on, on the serpent, which is, the, uh, which is Satan. Uh, in verse 17, he looks at Adam and he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, this is not universal. So guys, you don't need to take this as a biblical text that you should never listen to your spouse. Okay. There is some truth to the fact that if you listen to your wife when she gives you bad counsel, you're going to be in trouble, doubly. Okay, but he says, because you didn't be listened to the voice of your wife instead of listening to my voice, he says, you ended up eating of that tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of, and cursed is the ground because you did this. And if you sense now that the whole idea of the labor market is now messed up because it's been polluted by sin. And by the sin nature. And he says, you, you're going to be cursed. In, in pain, you shall struggle all the days of your life. Now you're starting to get understanding that this wonderful gift of work. Now you're understanding why Solomon is telling you, hey, it's not so easy. In verse 18, he says, by thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall struggle to be able to get all this to work out. In verse 19, you're going to sweat it out. By the sweat of your face, you'll, you'll end up eating your bread. In other words, when you get your, your, uh, your day's wages, in order to get what you're actually needing for, it's going to not be easy. And that leads me to the second point, the want of labor. 
Because of man's sin nature, now we have uh, our, a lot, our lot, our, our calling in life is going to be more difficult. And this is why we have laborers are few. Nobody really enjoys working when it's, when it's painful, when it involves suffering, when it involves sacrifice. Even though the design of work is good, it has been corrupted. Now man is unable to work it out. And the labor that we do doesn't always suffice. And that's why Solomon brings out these three points that you'll see in the text. Labor lacks permanence, labor lacks satisfaction, and labor lacks perfection. Now, I, do know, I want you to know that these are part of the text. If you look in chapter uh, 1, verse 3, you're going to see his theme all the way throughout the book. Chapter 1, verse 3. Solomon ends up writing his book after he identifies himself. He says, vanity and everything is vanity. Verse 3, what does a person gain by all the toil or all the work that he does during his life on earth under the sun? What does he gain? And that's the whole answer. This is the reason why the book of Koheleth, the book of Ecclesiastes is out here. Because many people have lost the zeal for work. It is not coming natural to many people because it feels like it's an emptiness. And the reason being is because it lacks permanent satisfaction and perfection. Let me explain very quickly using, using Solomon's words. It lacks permanence. If you turn there, you'll find in chapter 2, verse 18, part of our text, I hated all my work that I did under the sun, verse 18. I hated it. When I look back over it, I just feel this emptiness. I feel this frustration. I work so hard, but I have to leave it to somebody who will come after me. And who knows who gets to take it up, whether that person is even smart enough to keep it going. And yet he'll be master of all the things that I worked for, while even with all the wisdom that I had under the sun. He said, it's so empty. That's at the end of verse 19. You can just see and feel that, that angst. It's so frustrating if you, chapter, if you turn over to chapter 5, verse 15, you can see how this same theme is echoed over and over, the want of this work, of this labor. Chapter 5, verse 15, he says, um, as he came, I'll go ahead and read verse 13 and on. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and these riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of the son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for all the toil and the work that he may carry away in his hand. He'll take nothing. You've heard the phrase that uh, we often say at funerals, there's no U-Haul trucks to the, to the hearse. You can't take anything with you. It lacks permanence. It's just temporary. The other thing about work is that it lacks satisfaction. You can try and try and try, but you never get it done. In chapter 2, verse 20, I wanted to just read a few more of Solomon's insight. Chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by somebody else. The despair comes over him. Does it come over you? If I look a little further in chapter 4, uh, this same person, he is seeing in chapter 4, verse 4, then I saw all that I had done, all the toil and all the skill and work that had come, from a, had come from a man's envy of his neighbor. 
He says, you keep coveting what your neighbor has, and so you work harder to try to get it. And when you, when you, when you covet like that and you pursue it like that, it doesn't satisfy. That's why God says, don't give in to coveting. In chapter 4, verse 8, the idea there is that you, it's never enough. And when I read this text, one person who has no other son or brother, yet, he has, yet there is no end to all of his work, his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with the money he makes. He never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? He said, he doesn't get it. He's just like on a treadmill. He's, he's like the donkey running after that carrot. He just keeps going and going and going. In chapter 6, verse 7, he says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. Now, if you listen to Solomon here, he is saying, man, not only is labor not permanent, it doesn't last, it's all temporary, but it doesn't satisfy. You can work and work and work and work, work your fingers to the bone, and it's still, you get up the next day as if you have to do more. But the thing that's interesting here is labor lacks perfection. Labor lacks per perfection. In chapter 3, verse 9, one of our texts today, I want to just highlight that. He says, after he says there's a time for everything, whether it's time to make love or time to have war, whether you're casting away stones or building up something, a time to weep or time to laugh. When he finishes all of that, he comes to verse 9 and says, what gain, what gain has the laborer from all of this? It's, it's a rhetorical question that says it, it just can't solve. Our labor is empty, empty, empty. It's never enough. To sing that song, never enough, it will never give you the peace. It'll never be able to resolve the struggle of a, of a person's soul, male or female. Why? Where do all these struggles come from? If I take you to the book of James, the other wisdom book, James chapter 4, what causes the quarrels and the struggles and the fights among you? He says, it's, it, it is, is it not this, that your passions are at war? You desire and you don't have, so you work a little harder. You, you come up with your own plans. You even are willing to murder, and you covet what everybody else is having, your neighbor has, and he says, but you can't get it. You can't get your hands on it. And so that's why you, you get into these difficult situations. You fight and you quarrel. It's really interesting how we are such a mess because of our fallen nature. We don't like to do that much anymore. We like to have it done for us. Now, I told you there's three points to the sermon. The first two were from Ecclesiastes. The first one was, wow, the gift of labor. The second was the want of labor, the fact that it doesn't measure up. So I'll leave you with the wonder of labor. The wonder of labor is interesting because it is God's means to secure our salvation. Pastor, what are you talking about? You see, if you just erase labor from this world, we are, we are in a miserable situation. I want you to know that labor actually is the very means whereby we are saved. And Pastor, be careful. You're reformed in this church. Absolutely. That's why I want to make sure you get this point really clear. The wonder of labor is it's God's labor that I want you to see and not your own. When you look at Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it begins by saying, he saved us. Now, who is the he? It's certainly not you and me. 
Okay, this is a divine pronoun, and that is talking about God. God saved us, not because of works done by us. You see, our labor cannot do these things. We cannot bring about salvation. God is the one who saves us in righteousness, and it's according to his own mercy. In other words, the things that he does out of mercy with the motivation of mercy, and what does he say, what he tells Titus, it's by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God does something, a work in your heart. That Holy Spirit comes and does what you can't do for yourself. He is able to wash, and that leads to regenerate. He starts something that couldn't be started on its own. And then he renews with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are more familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, because you can see it clearly there. For by grace you have been saved. Remember, Titus says God saved you, but here he says, for by grace you have been saved. And then to clarify for all the people in Ephesus, he says, uh, you have been saved through faith. Now, some people will say, yes, I have great faith. Yeah, I can boast of all of my grand faith. I even have more faith than you. That's not what the text tells us. He says the reason that you can be saved is because God gives you faith. And let me explain it for you in the next verse. He says, for by grace you have been saved through this commodity of faith, and this faith is not of your own doing. It's not by your works. It's not like you could punch the clock for 40-hour week and get a bank account full of faith. You get it? Faith is not something that you get because you want it. Faith is something that God has to provide. Remember when we talk about God's, God gives work as, as a gift, but here he gives faith as a gift, which leads to the gift of eternal life. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This faith is not of your own doing. This faith is a gift from God. It's not by your works, not by your struggle, by your labor, lest you would be able to boast that you could say, I help God out. You can't help God out. You've been saved by grace. Now, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, explains to me very, very clearly this point. The wonder of labor is seen in Jesus. You know, he saved us. But let me show you how he did it. I think you have the text there. For even the Son of Man, and we know we're talking about Jesus, the book of Mark identifies the Christ not simply as the Messiah but as the Son of Man and he says the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve I have to repeat that because it's marvelously written he didn't come for everybody to treat him so well and to be able to polish his shoes and to be able to feed him gourmet meals and allow him to have his bed tucked in, you know, and, and made every night with a little chocolate on the pillow no he did not come to be served as if he's in a luxury hotel the Son of Man came to do what? To serve. To serve. To labor. To struggle. To work. Now, when you digest that, Mark gets it so clearly. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And what did he do? He gave his life as a ransom for many. If I had a lot of time, I would take you to Philippians chapter 2, and I'd explain to you how he came to serve. He, he humbled himself. He took on the, the form of man. He, he became, he was even birthed into this world, and, and he suffered all the miseries of this life. That was a part of his work. 
Theologians say that was his active obedience. But then the other thing that he did was his passive obedience when he submitted himself to be crucified. It was no, no, he didn't kill himself, but he was presenting himself as a lamb before his shears is dumb, he didn't open his mouth, but he ended up doing the work. That's why when you go to Calvary's cross, you can read about it in all the gospels, but in the one in Matthew in particular, he says, to tell us die. When Jesus had been hoisted up on the cross and he had been there for the three hours, he labored because what was he doing? It was the just person who was doing the deed that the unjust couldn't handle, and that was taking on the punishment for our sin. According to Paul in Romans 5, the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus worked, and he took on the suffering that we deserved. And as he had finished all the suffering, when the wrath of the Father, which is what he was saving us from, was poured out fully on Christ, and, and, and he was just about to give up the ghost, he yells out, it is done. My work is done. And he gave up the ghost. You may not fully understand all that was happening. Certainly the people that were standing there at the foot of the cross, they were weeping, and some of them were gnashing their teeth, and some of them had just made those mocking words, you said you could save us, but you can't even save yourself. They're looking at this bruised, beaten person. Isaiah said it so well, he was despised and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows. In other words, his labor was to go through this misery of this world's life. If you get it, he did that work for you. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 explains it even more. If you would just sit down and read, he came as a great high priest. And what the work that he did was to be able to prepare that perfect sacrifice so that the Lamb of God would be slain. And when that work was done, when the Lamb's blood was spilt, then no more judgment was going to come so that God's wrath would pass over us. Do you see the work of Jesus? It gives even more meaning to John 3.16. For God so loved people in this world that he gave, he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would rest in what Jesus had done. Rest, not work, not go out of your way to partner with him, but rest in what Jesus had done on Calvary's cross would not perish but of everlasting life. I gave a few other texts of scripture that I highlighted on the back, which is uh, of your page, which is Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Do you remember Jesus' words on this labor day? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Earthly labor is a gift from God. It is not just to keep you busy. Now, I want to encourage you, what are you here for? Be careful what you answer. Are you here just to check the box and say, I've been to church? I feel good. Are you here just to say, isn't it nice what our church is doing? See if you can finish this verse, which I know you heard because I quoted it here before. The harvest is plenteous, but the 
laborers are few. And so he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will raise up laborers. I'm going to be praying that God will raise up laborers in 2022. I think as we were teaching in Sunday school, we want to build the kingdom, not my own. Building the kingdom of Christ alone. Are you a part of that kingdom? I want to encourage you. Yes, some of the things you do will feel vain and empty. Sometimes it may like you're beating against the air. And sometimes it may feel like I have, I've been a pastor in several other churches. And after you've been there for 10 years and you leave, you wonder if they even remember your name. Only if they look at the plaque on the wall. You're soon forgotten. You see, my dad's quote, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see, Christ has already done all the work. Now we rest in him. Galatians 2.20 says it so well, that the life that I now live, in other words, because he's already saved me, he's worked faith in me, he's regenerated me, he's renewed me by the Holy Spirit, he has changed my life. According to 1 Corinthians, all has become new. Now I have a new purpose in life, and my purpose is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He'll take care of all these other earthly things because we're resting in what he has done on Calvary's cross. Are you resting Resting in what Jesus has done.